0: this is your is this your fourth or fifth book at this point
1: uh all right so it's the fourth book in the american market um it's the fifth book if you count my phd dissertation which i publish as a a free pdf that can be downloaded but it's actually if you it's actually the seventh book because i have two previous books published only in spain yeah
0: that's a very roundabout answer for a data guy (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> very accurate and very precise
0: <laughs> very 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 accurate and it's like <laughs> that, I hope that cleared it up for everyone so I was look I was looking at the book and obviously I saw a lot of familiar names of, of both people I look up to in contemporaries, lavishing praise on it. Obviously, Steve Wexler and Ben Jones, Randy Crum. And I'm like, OK, you know, it's like, look, I know you, but I don't know you. Right. And mm-hmm. cl- clearly you showing up here is a is a big favor to me and I appreciate it. But I, I, I knew you were good people when I'm looking at the forward and you have a Black Sabbath quote amongst the quotes in your <laughs> forward. And I was like, OK, this is going to be a different kind of data book.
1: I'm always able to squeeze in some heavy metal uh, in every book that I write. In How Chats Lie, I actually have a whole section about Judas Priest uh, in in the previous book. And I actually included a photograph of Judas Priest that I paid for, it's the most expensive figure that I paid for in How Chats Lie. And it does make sense, it's not a joke. It's, it's, a, it's a section about how to think about data, how to think about how things are measured. And I was able to include a heavy metal reference in there.
0: I think, look, it's whenever you can make something that's that reaches beyond just your core audience and engages them on different levels. I think that's great. It's amazing to have a sense of humor and wit about your stuff. So I'm down for that. But I, of course, I'm also the guy who had uh, the only dad blog uh, named after a poison song. Talk daddy to me. So I, <laughs> you know, I am I may be the core audience for this. Poison boy, so, boy, boy is also in my previous book.
1: <laughs> so you need to get that one
0: for you sure. to get that. I do need yeah. to get that. Yeah, you're, you yeah. see, you're selling me now. Like you're selling everyone right now. There you um, go. So if I if I were to ham handedly take a a crude slap at what this book is about, this is your attempt to sort data people into the different Hogwarts houses.
1: Mm-hmm. I would go beyond that. So m- the way that I wrote this book is that um, first of all, it's my by far my most personal book, and uh, in the sense that it's it's my attempt to recover the passion that I used to have for data visualization. Obviously, I I, I have kept teaching data visualization during the pandemic. I love it, I absolutely love it. But at the same time, I was starting to feel a little bit burned out or even bored with myself and say, I need to look beyond myself. I need to engage with people and, and perhaps write a book that is not so much about the practice or the craft but about the people who practice the craft. That's the whole point of the book. And I actually explained that explicitly in the in the prologue, in which I say. This is a book about insight, but it's not the type of insight that you may be thinking about. It's not analytical insight. It's insight in the sense of trying to look inside people's heads in order to understand what types of motivations and what types of purposes they have in mind whenever they design data visualizations. And then once I came up with a list of people to talk to, which, by the way, the the list of people is not representative of anything. It's not a random sample. It's simply the, the first I, I came up with a list of like 50 or 60 people whose work I admire. So I said, I really not need to talk to these people because they are so interesting. But it's only that if I had kept like 60 people, then the book would be like 700 pages. So I needed to bring down the, bring down the list. Uh, and then what I did was to conduct these interviews Actually, they were not interviews because I didn't have a list of questions. It was, it was a series of conversations that I had with people. I really like to have conversations with people. And I recorded those conversations, transcribed those conversations, tried to shape them uh, in the form of conversations. But then I had to organize the book in some sense. So I came up with those three or four bins of people, like the pragmatists, the eccentrics, Uh, And then I don't remember what the other ones are. The The, the The ambassadors and the narrators, right? The ambassadors are the ones who try to push, to bring data visualization to the masses or to people outside the field. And then the narrators are the people who are like me, right? Journalists and communicators, right?
0: I, I find that really heartening because i w- i was honestly thinking about this a while back my my attempt at this was far kitschier and i i think of in, ter- in terms of data culture and how to make things fun and i often end up doing t-shirts and stickers um so i was thinking how can i break this down into be it houses or you know tarot <laughs> like bo mccready or, or to explain different perspectives on data and i think Uh, your sample includes most of the first chapter on the pragmatists. Uh, The Mm -hmm. pragmatists is where the rules of data visualization are formed, right? Because Mm -hmm. in any system you have to have like rule makers and rule breakers. And Mm -hmm. if you don't first learn the rules and then you decide, you you don't know the rules that you're breaking but also you're breaking them without purpose. Um, And I I just found it really interesting. And when you're explaining that, I'm like, I really emphasize with the ambassador. I I relate to that because so much of what I do with my public data visualization visualization work outside of my day-to-day where I'm doing client work is I'm attempting to make data visualization, not for data people. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to make stuff on topics. I think people would enjoy. I typically skew towards a one chart answer with more supportive text to try to bring the story to life. And like, that's where I live. And that's not, you know, the right or wrong answer. Everyone has their own sort of spot in all this. And I'm sure many people bridge multiple areas of it, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The, I mean, I love every single chapter that I wrote for the book because I admire uh, everyone who I spoke with uh, for the book. But the ambassadors part is probably my favorite, uh, precisely because of what you're saying. I'm also super interested in bringing not only data visualization, but data science in general um, to the public, right? Actually, one one of the ideas that is sort of like sloshing inside my skull at the moment for future books are a series of books about data visualization for everyone or data, They actually data science for everyone, talking about probability, how to think probabilistically, talking about certain statistical fallacies that are very common out there among the general public and how to fight against those. So that's one of my drives. I'm not that interested in, let's say, you know, high-end innovations in data visualization, super advanced technologies. There are tons of people out there working on Uh, applying artificial intelligence to data visualization. I truly admire that, but that's not who I am, right? Uh, What I really like to to show is a a person who has never heard of data visualization or a person who is afraid of statistics, you should not, and, and tell that person, you should not be afraid of this stuff. This is not magic, and here's how to do it. Here's how to get started. That's what drives me.
0: I think it's great to find what you're passionate about. And obviously you've been doing this for quite some time and you've exhibited a lot of passion and creativity. You know, you're extremely influential in the field and you're teaching it regularly all the time. I think it's interesting. You're talking about your next book down the road, like you're, you think in terms of your next book. So you're collating ideas together and you're thinking about what topics are both relevant to people in terms of what they might need, but also what's going to keep you engaged as a narrator you want to continually be sort of putting back into people, both in terms of people that are already engaged in this field. And it very much is a practice field like law or, or anything else where you can't learn it once and be done. It's constantly evolving and changing. But also you're interested in the lay people because more and more we're all confronted with a data visualization but also numbers on a daily basis. I mean if we were to talk about something that's not the least bit controversial like COVID-19, there mm-hmm. there's a lot of statistics that flew around, especially early on and, and even to this day. Like I had a friend saying I heard the numbers are up 15%. And I said they didn't give you an absolute number. Like mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. like that 15% could be very different if we're talking a hundred thousand people versus 10 people. You know it's yeah yeah I, it's
1: like it's like when you when you're talking about increased risk of doing something right if you take these medicine you have, you know, double the risk of getting a particular side effect. Well, based on what? What is the, what is the baseline for that double, right? So if it is only a 0.001%, then double the risk is actually nothing, right? So you need to know what the baseline is. Yeah, but I would go beyond that. I'm not, I mean, those are pretty basic problems in statistics, which I think uh, 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 they are still worth writing about and warning people against, etc. But I'm talking about slightly more advanced stuff, like you know, probabilistic thinking, right? Probabilistic thinking, I think that is super important. But also, again, as I said before, statistical fallacies, like you know, the ecological fallacy, for example, and the problem of aggregating data or infer inferring things inappropriately from highly aggregated data. Um, how dangerous that can be, right? That's something that I touched upon in How Chats Lie, my previous book. But when when I was writing that specific chapter, I thought, there's a book to be written here. There's a, an entire book about these types of fallacies, right? Now, I don't know whether that is going to be my next book. I always have like three, four ideas for, for books, and I may end up writing something completely different, but someone uh, should write about those issues,
0: I think that's fair. And, you know, whether or not you're the person that decides to commit pen to paper and bring that about or you're you know, p- kicking the ball over and saying someone else come play on this topic. I think all these things are really valid. And I'm going to admit I'm a blockhead and I don't know many of these fall- fallacies. And that's great because that means that's something else for me to learn. And that means I'm a prime candidate for this book. So, because, I mean, if we're already talking about people that are practitioners of this, um, Many of us have been around enough that there was an education for this before you started off on this career path. I came. F- to, into BI from an IT perspective. So mm-hmm. I was a programmer and I ultimately discovered that I loved the data aspect of it. And then I loved the data visualization aspect of it even more. And I grew into that. Uh, my best friend who does the same thing was a French major. You know, it's, it's we sort of fell into this backwards and now you see their whole degree programs built around it and, and whole tracks of education, not just dedicated to the tools that enable you to do this, but the thinking behind it, because it really is a two-part thing if you're the doer of this, not just the recipient. You know, mm-hmm. you can be great at tools all day, but if you don't necessarily know what you need to be saying or who the audience is and that sort of thing, you can make wholly ineffective, great looking charts. Uh, yeah. Or you could know all about the stuff and, and um, you know, not necessarily have the tools you need to bring it about. You know, not everyone can commit to pen and paper for to communicate the ideas that they need.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, That's a, I, in the art of insight, in the latest book, I, I call data visualization a trade or a craft Because, again, as you say, I mean, it's not not something that can be learned only through uh, mastering the tools, although that is important. And it cannot be learned either just by mastering the theory. Or the science it's a combination of everything right the science informs the practice but then the practice informs the science back right it's a craft it's something that is learned by learned by practicing it by seeing how the theories and concepts apply to the real world and then shaping them and as you mentioned before learning the rules although i always put quotation marks around the word the word rules uh, I, I, and then learning how to break those so-called rules, right? In what circumstances they need to be they need to be broken?
0: I think that's um, a very salient point. You've got your four cohorts here that you're describing, although obviously they're not they're they're hazy boundaries, right? Like they're they're not a- absolute. Uh, so like the eccentrics who are your boundary pushers and your pragmatists who are your rule makers. The, the work of the eccentrics pushing the boundaries of what's possible and often failing and sometimes making spectacularly strange things. That and, that, work, and that's
1: per, that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. What, yeah, because
0: yeah. without that innovation, you don't get the next idea that does work right? Like if you stuck strictly to the rules of what had been established, we wouldn't have the spark line, (laughs) you know, you wouldn't have bands because that Mm -hmm. wasn't uh, one of the OG charts that we had, you know, Mm -hmm. and for that matter, we would just be looking at numbers and spreadsheets. We wouldn't have pushed past that to aggregate the data and interpret it visually and combine it together and then contextualize it by combining different pieces of data on we would, not have,
1: we would not have data visualization at all. I mean, because if, if you, for example, take one of the foundational books in the history of data visualization, which is William Playfair's Commercial and Political Atlas, in the book, which you can buy online, you can buy in, on Amazon and other platforms, you will notice that Playfair, at the very end of the 18th century, was very aware that the people who were going to approach his book were used to seeing data represented just through tables. And he wrote extensively in the book justifying himself. This is the reason why I am transforming all these numbers into these weird looking charts that you are seeing in my book. This is the reason. Now that sounds silly today because we are so used to seeing line graphs, which is what essentially what he used in his book. But we could translate that type of thinking to the very present moment in which, yes, we need to innovate. We need to try to come up with new graphic forms. and. Sure, many of those new graphic forms will not work correctly, right? But that's not a reason why not to try to create them. We need to expand the vocabulary of data visualization. Obviously, we need to do it carefully. We need to do it in the right circumstances because particularly in the context of, for example, journalism or in the context of data analytics, etc. the main purpose of a visualization is to inform. And if you create a very weird, you know, very intricate, very unusual chart, you may end up confusing uh, the public. But sometimes you can try to push the boundary, right? You can try to do something slightly new and see where it goes and see how people respond.
0: I have two branching thoughts off of that, so I'm going to try to hit them and and make sure we get to both of them. Uh, the first one is in, in some of my client work, I've started creating orientation dashboards to add context to existing dashboards. Mm-hmm. Many people roll on and off of client accounts. Many are unfamiliar with the underlying data, and many are suspicious of data visualization in general, especially when they hear words like aggregate. So they'll mm-hmm. hear that, and to them that means obscure or hide. And mm-hmm. I, I've created essentially a dashboard that exists as a tool to say okay now you're ready and and as part of this it's i'm going to show you the numbers the way you're used to looking at them here's a tabular view now i'm going to show you the same numbers and a bar chart notice how much easier you were able to see the highs and lows and it's the exact same numbers hover on it but like you hover on it if you don't believe me and explain to when we say aggregate we're going to Add average, you know, the same things that you were going to do if you were to have this in Excel to, to bring about like some degree of comfort and data literacy built into a BI product. And also, you were talking about the you know swinging for the fences and complexity. I think of you know Minard's map, and I'm probably mispronouncing that because I don't say it often enough. But it was a single, you know, it's it's sort of like Tufty's favorite chart that you know you'll see all over the internet usually when you Google his name. Um, and it's you'll see multiple aspects of data displayed simultaneously. It's a timeline. It's mm-hmm. also geographic. it's, it's map, also yeah. Indi- mm-hmm. yeah, it's also indicating troop numbers and it's including temperature at the same time. So you've got at mm-hmm. least four different aspects of it. And without this was all done you know by hand, obviously very meticulously and not in a modern digital context where you could hover on anything for additional details where you could understand what this number means juxtaposed against this unless you're using like a slide rule to a- actually measure yeah. them as you track. but super ambitious, but also incredibly difficult on the user. But if you put in all the effort to start to understand it, you can really appreciate it. But that's and you can the- and you can
1: get a lot from it. That's the thing. It's like one of the things that people who are um, skeptical about data visualization is that they often ask from data visualizations things that data visualization cannot deliver. So data visualization is not about the specific figures. Data visualization is all about the patterns and trends underlining the data, that is what it's all about. If you want a specific figures, then by all means, use a table, that's what tables are for. But if what you care about is the patterns in, in large amounts of data and trends, whatever, in a time series, a data set, then nothing beats a, a good data visualization, but they serve different purposes. Sometimes you need to design both. I usually encourage people, for example, whenever I, I critique um, dashboards and other types of interactive displays, Different readers demand different things. Some people care only about the big picture, the the bird's eye view of the data. Those people are the ones who are going to enjoy your data visualization the most. But other people are more detail-oriented. They do want to see the actual figures. So you need to serve them as well. So give them an alternative view, display the data as a table, let them download the spreadsheet so they can actually look at the numbers. There are two different
0: purposes. 100%. 100%. And I find uh, many times I have clients that are, they have one particular tabular view that this is how they've always done it. And they mm-hmm. can't imagine doing it outside of that view. Now, it's incredibly demanding on them. And it's very difficult to teach someone new how to use it, but it's how it's been done. And many times, when trying to wean people off of that, you know, I'm going uh, from a high level of aggregation at the top of my at the top of my BI product to say, "Hey, look, here's the most important numbers you need to know. You don't have to look through there and count them." Next, let's talk about your key topics. We're going to expand slightly, and then by the time they finally get down to that, if they choose to even engage with it anymore, it's still there. But many times, you know, trying to to basically wean them off of this, or at the very least say, there's more that you don't realize that there is. And I think many times it's not that people necessarily are resistant, people are uninformed. And as a result, they expect that data visualization is going to be one thing when in reality, you know, in the hands of sort of a skilled practitioner who understands their needs and also understands what's possible, you can sort of pry them out of that really, really manual data exploration.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I would not say that... uh So people tend to be conservative. We all tend to be conservative, right? We like to stick to the things that we are familiar with. Um, And when we find something that is unfamiliar, right, a new graphic form, a new way of displaying data, usually the first snap reaction is, what what the hell am I looking looking at, right? It's rejection. That's a perfectly normal human reaction, right? It's only that, um, at, at least some of us, uh, try to keep an open mind, right? And, and 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 we we like to devote a little bit of time to try to understand what what we are looking at. But uh, it's perfectly normal. I completely understand that. In order to show the value of novel ways of displaying data, sometimes you actually need to give it a try. So it's like you give it a try, then you present it to the skeptical person, and then you try to ask that person to answer questions that you know that they would not be able to answer through the tabular representation of the data alone and then you put those two things side by side and then you demonstrate that you see how you can see these patterns and trends better in the datas in the in the data visualization and not in the table maybe you need both.
0: I think that's a super valid point. I know for me, much of my latest exploration has been uh, network diagrams. I've really fallen Mm -hmm. in love with network diagrams. And a lot of that has come down to uh, absolute failures of things that should not be network diagrams. So (laughs) uh, behind me over my shoulder, I have the Taco Bell menu as a network diagram. It works brilliantly. There's a limited number of items, a limited number of ingredients and a lot of crossover. So it works really robustly to explain, hey, most Taco Bell items contain the same five ingredients. But when you try to uh, swing for the fences, I tried uh, NCAA brackets as a network diagram and I tried family trees as a network diagram. Uh, Both uh, were spectacular fails. But more than anything, it helped me realize sometimes a particular chart is the standard chart because that's the more effective way of doing it. Sometimes yeah, it's fun. Absolutely. It's fun to swing for the fences and see what could we do? Could we come up with an innovative new way of doing this? But many times you come back to, wow, that works because that is perhaps the most effective way of accomplishing The most
1: effective way. I mean, sometimes the standard thing, the conventional thing is the best solution. That's for sure.
0: So let me ask you this, in terms of you talked about how you you pulled in all these different examples of who you find to sort of fall into these four different groups. And the book, by the way, we haven't even teased the title yet, is The Art of Insight, How Great Visualization to Designers Think, which I believe is available on November 15th. Yeah. Um, but um, when when you're sort of pulling this together, one of my challenges, and I'm sure this is much more uh, more profound for you being much more high profile, how difficult is it to find new voices to follow? I mean, I know for me particularly you're searching social media or whatever to find new people's work and the algorithms keep kicking back to the same people you interact with regularly. How yeah. do you go about finding sort of exciting new ideas and exciting new voices?
1: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not great at that, I must admit, but I keep an eye not only on social media. I also keep, um, I keep an eye on the, uh, not on the winners, but on the finalists, on the long list of awards, like the Information is Beautiful Awards. I am... Also, part of the jury of the Sigma Awards, we see that which is a data journalism and investigative reporting award. So I keep an eye on, and I discover new voices all the time by being part of the community, by giving back, by being part of the of the jury of all these uh, all these awards. Uh, but sometimes I just stumble upon new people by happenstance. Someone recommends someone else, and then I, I start following that person. The good thing, the great thing about the current visualization landscape is that there's new people coming in all the time, right? So it's it's hard to keep hard to keep track of everyone.
0: My my wonder is, and this is just a thought, is are we going to experience a period where we have creative stagnation as more people come in through data visualization degree programs? Like the the data visualization landscape has kind of been weird, right? Like we've been a motley crew. People have come from all over the place like, are we going to see like a period of sort of normalization and expansion again? Like, what do you think is going to happen? Maybe.
1: Yeah. I mean, I honestly couldn't care less. (laughs) What I just want is that people keep practicing the craft and making great data visualizations, regardless of whether they are, um, you know, they try to push the boundaries or not. I'm perfectly fine with traditional types of charts. Those are the ones that I use the most. But, you know, there's also value in stagnation. There's also value in on having a a period of like stagnation in the sense that you use that period not so much to innovate and to try to create new graphic forms, for example, or new technologies, but you use that period of time to bring in more people in. And by people, I don't mean professionals, I mean, regular people who are afraid of data visualization or statistics but you bring them into the fold by showing them hey as i said before this is not magic you can also do it you may not become a professional data visualization designer you don't need to you don't need to you just need to use this skill and apply it to your to your daily job so i think that that is the value of periods of stagnation
0: that's a really uh, valid point. Uh, I know for me, I was pulled into data long before I, I enjoyed it as a field through Freakonomics. So first yeah. by the books and then later the podcast, it was a way of sort of bringing data stories to life that, in a way that I was unfamiliar with. And honestly, I thought it was going to be boring and uninteresting. And as I learned more about it, I not only learned you know more about data and economic concepts, I learned more about storytelling. And then once I actually discovered data as a field, I was like, wow, this is the field I've been looking for all along and I, I sort of was primed to embrace it. So I think it's a really great point. One of the most rewarding things for me and so much of my work is when someone like my wife, who has no interest in data or data visualization, sees some things uh, me or someone else did and, and like remarks something that they learned from it. Um, because that's, that's really like the dream. Like it's, it's fun to preach to the choir and talk to other data experts. But when, you know, someone that is, is the uninitiated, you know, embraces it and learns something or is enthusiastic and wants to talk about it. Uh, that's when you you really feel at least in, in for me as perhaps an ambassador, where I really feel like, wow, we got one there. Yep.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it, it happens to me every semester, right? I and mean, my classes, my, class, my introduction to data visualization and infographics classes, that, that's what my main class is. That's the title of my main class. Uh, it's mandatory in our data science program. Um, all masters in data science students take my class. And some of them are a little bit puzzled when they come to my class because they say, well, this is a communication class because I focus a lot on data visualization for communication. It's a journalism class. It's a graphic design class. I'm interested in machine learning and artificial What am I doing here? But most of them end up seeing the value of this stuff. When you open their eyes, when you show them examples, and you, you force them to make their own examples, they start seeing the value of this type of, of, this type of skill. They realize that it's part of the skill set that any person who works in this field needs, the ability to communicate clearly. Uh, through words, uh, writing well is also a great skill to have, but also through also through visual. so and some of them you know come to my class with no expectations. Some of them decide to pursue a career in data visualization just because of the because of the class.
0: That's got to be exciting as a professor. I've dabbled on the side teaching uh, with Emory University uh, through a nonprofit to help sort of re-educate, not re-educate that sounds horrible um, upskill. <laughs> Upskill people yeah. and put them in data careers. So I've I've enjoyed some of that myself. It's re- when you see a student who's really sort of captivated and and fired up, even though many times, especially when they're very early on, that will lead in in sort of interesting directions like overuse of color or packed bubbles. Um, mm-hmm. I, I the enthusiasm can be sort of directed and coached. You know, it's it's when yeah. someone just doesn't is not is not as interested. So it's it's really exciting to to hear stories of that and to see how you know, students are spinning out of your classes into data fields. Um, it's
1: enthusiasm can be channeled and can be can be shaped. All right? That's the reason why I always talk about data visualization as a craft. You give people something to do, then they come back to you with whatever it is that they have done. You praise it, and you always praise it, regardless of what it is. If they put the effort, if you're an educator and you see that a student is putting an effort, Always praise them at first because of the effort, because they have tried, and then you try to shape them. You try to show them a different path. If they have used, for example, pack bubbles in an, in an in an in an inappropriate way, then you need to show them an alternative way to do things. And then you show the two graphics side by side, and you let them think about: Do you think that this alternative works better? If you think that it does, then there is the this is the path that I recommend that you take.
0: I think that's you know you're using the socratic method a bit there which i appreciate I, I i like you know presenting people with options and asking questions and sort of helping them understand that like i i put in a lot of effort with trying to show different alternatives to pie charts not because pie charts are are broken or not a valid option but because we've all seen so many uh, inappropriate examples of pie charts that it's useful yeah. to show you know better use of real estate better uses when you have too many combinations of data demonstrated on it uh, how difficult it is to interpret the wedges i was i was reading up on you in advance of this and there's a uk guardian article from 2012 where they they seem to make much of the article about your dislike of circles and i i sort of felt like they're they're sort of showing that you know, where, where they are on, I mean, obviously it's 2012, so the field was in a different place then. But yeah, circles can be very difficult for the human mind to wrap our head around in terms yeah. of relative size. And, you know, And if the,
1: if the purpose of the graphic is to compare things, then using area as an encoding is not the most appropriate choice, right? You need to use, it's better to use position, length, or height to represent the data. But that doesn't mean that circles are the wrong choice in every single case they are not right so if you think about for example proportional symbol maps which are those types of maps that use circles to represent let's say a number of, I don't know, poor people all over the world, right, country by country, or, you know, global CO2 emissions country by country, and you use bubbles to represent those emissions. The purpose of that type of map is not that you're able to compare bubbles to each other very precisely, very accurately, right? The purpose is to give you the big picture of the data. And in that case, that type of encoding area is completely appropriate. Because the purpose is not to compare, it's to give you the big picture of the data. So no graphic, no type of graphic, and that includes the pie chart, no type of graphic is ever good or bad in the abstract. They are just better or worse, depending, or more appropriate or less appropriate, depending on on the purpose that you have in mind when you are designing the graphic.
0: I think that's a fantastic thought to go out on. I I think, you know, understanding that uh, there are better options many times and that even that really weird chart that you think might not have an application might have a very perfect application that you just don't know yet. Um, The book is The Art of Insight, How how Great Visualization Designers Think. Uh, Alberto, it's been wonderful having you on. Is there anything else you'd like to promote or where could people find you?
1: Uh, people can find me through my uh, weblog, which is the title of my first book in the United States, thefunctionalart.com, functionalart.com, and then through my personal website, uh, which is AlbertoCairo.com.
0: Wonderful. Thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Zach.